0: Love a good fright? Stream your fears with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and acclaimed exclusives like Creepshow and Slasher, Flesh and Blood, experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series covers the horror spectrum. Meaning there's something for every type of horror, thriller, and supernatural fan. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder. So good, it's scary.
1: The Real-Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time.
2: Why do I obsess over true crime? It's because I need to know every
3: detail because they say that the devil's in the details.
1: Listen to Real-Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network.
4: The coroner's office has done an extensive amount of forensic in the last several days, and it's to my sadness and disappointment that I'm reporting to you that it is the confirmed remains of Mitrice Richardson.
5: On August 9th, 2010, 11 months after Mitrice Richardson went missing, State Park rangers were hiking in Dark Canyon, deep in the Santa Monica Mountains. They were looking for a marijuana grow farm that they had eradicated the year before. They found a human skeleton. The rangers were way off the hiking trails that are open to the public. They had accessed the canyon through a private residence, located on Payuma Road, where Dark Creek begins. There's a hiking trail nearby, the Backbone Trail, And it's possible to climb down from that trail into the creek bed, if you know exactly where to look. So they started down into the creek, which is more of a climb than a hike. They scaled giant boulders, navigated through steep and jagged terrain, and hacked through thick foliage, sharp thorns, vines, and poison oak. They found several items of clothing, a pink belt, a black bra, a pair of blue jeans, This was the same clothing that Mitrice Richardson had been wearing when she was released from the Lost Hills Sheriff Station almost a year earlier and started wandering through the dark alone. The team marked the clothing's location and then continued their hike. They started down the south side of the creek bed, and that's when, at around 1 p.m., the supervising ranger saw a human skull and a leg bone. He also saw tufts of hair, which the Ranger believed to be African-American. The Ranger's cell phone wasn't working, so he radioed in to the dispatcher and used his handheld GPS device to give them the exact coordinates of the team's location. This was only the first in a long line of missed calls that day. Miscommunication was a theme that would continue as the afternoon turned into evening, and Mitrice's family waited at the scene, desperate for answers. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Helen Gone. episode, we talked about the day the remains were found from the perspective of Mitrice's family, Dr. Rhonda, and Tashaka, whose organization, React, had been helping them with the search for months. But now, we want to take a look at that day from the perspective of the police and the coroner. A lot of what happened that night is contradicted and disputed, so much so that the Los Angeles County Office of Independent Review did a full-fledged report. In 2012, they produced a 55-page report. Much of the dispute revolves around who made the call to move Maitrece's remains. Because moving the remains before the coroner's office could investigate the scene destroyed the crime scene and ruined perhaps the only chance of uncovering what happened to Maitrece. It's
4: it's not something that happens uh, in a manner where you have past practices that allow you to do things
5: better. This is Lee Baca, <laughs> sheriff of Los Angeles County at the time, at a press conference talking about some of the report's conclusions.
4: Because that always leads to a better solution than to just
5: stop. This press conference audio isn't the best, so we're going to walk you through some of the conclusions that were made by the Office of Independent Review. After the remains were found, it was immediately clear that law enforcement personnel knew that this could be Mitrice Richardson. This was, potentially, a high-profile incident. The search and rescue team from Lost Hills drove to the Piuma Road address where the team had started their hike. They set up an incident command post there. Meanwhile, the Lost Hills station notified the two detectives with the LA County Sheriff's Department's Homicide Bureau who had been put in charge of Mitrice's case. Dan McElderry and Kevin Acevedo that the remains had been found. Chuck Knowles and Steve Agucci were the LAPD detectives who had been investigating Mitrice's case. Their contact numbers were on the bottom of the missing posters, and they were the detectives who had interviewed Mitrice's family. But they were not the ones at her crime scene. There are no proper names in the Office of Independent Review report, by the way, so just trying to figure out who was actually responsible for what takes quite a bit of detective work. At 2.45 p.m., so around an hour and 45 minutes after the initial call, Detectives McElderry and Acevedo drove to Lost Hills Station. They arrived at Lost Hills at around 3.35 p.m., and they and the Malibu Search and Rescue Team headed out to the Payuma Road command post. At the same time, the Coroner's Special Operations and Response Team, aka SORT, was also en route to the Piuma Road post. By around 4.40 p.m., the SORT team made arrangements to assemble back at Lost Hill Station. They were standing by to be taken to the site where the remains were found. A helicopter airlifted McElderry and Acevedo from the Lost Hill Station. They were at the crime scene by 5.20 p.m. I'm calling it a crime scene because as a licensed private investigator and journalist who has covered true crime for years... I know that all suspicious deaths should be treated as homicides until proven otherwise. And securing that crime scene until the coroner arrived should have been everyone's absolute priority. Coroner's personnel were told that they would be airlifted to the body shortly. So they waited. At the site, detectives made their way to the remains. Michael Derry and Acevedo saw a skull, a skeletal leg, and a pelvic bone lying about 40 feet to the south of the drainage, partially obscured by twigs and leaves. One of the detectives took photos of the remains with his cell phone. They then searched the area for any additional evidence and walked to the GPS coordinates where the items of clothing had been found. Later, Maitrice's mother, Latice, would question the accuracy of those GPS coordinates that were given to them by the detectives. Some of Mitrice's family members pointed out that although the terrain was rough, the GPS coordinates were physically not far from nearby homes. The clothes were found about 1,000 feet from the house where detectives began their hike. The belt was found about 500 feet from the house. These coordinates would become crucial later when other investigators and family members tried to retrace the detective steps. After dropping off the detectives, the helicopter was supposed to pick up the coroner's office personnel, but the pilot got a distress call. Two teen hikers were stuck halfway up a cliff in a canyon. At 5.43 p.m., the helicopter flew there, then picked up the stranded hikers and returned them to the trailhead. The helicopter was then due to fly back to Lost Hills to pick up the coroner's office personnel. But when they were just a few minutes out, they got another call. This time, a female hiker had fallen off a cliff in another canyon. So they rerouted, dropped a paramedic down to treat the teen for suspected fractures, and then flew her to a hospital in Pasadena. After dropping the injured hiker off at 7.03, the pilot flew back to the Lost Hills Station. But by now, the pilot, who had 30 years of experience, by the way, knew that they were running out of daylight and out of fuel. The pilot later said that he did not have enough fuel to fly to the Lost Hill Station, pick up the coroner's team, drop them off to view the remains, and then get everyone safely back out. Exactly what happened next is in dispute. And a lot of it sums up what was going on with the investigation in general. Perhaps the most important was the series of cell phone calls that took place between the homicide detectives who were in Dark Canyon, their lieutenant, and the coroner's office personnel back at the command post. Then, as it is now, it was hard to get reception. So police said that a lot of the calls were dropped. While this was going on, the marijuana reconnaissance team made the call. They were getting out. So they hiked out at around 6 p.m. This left the search and rescue personnel and the homicide detectives. At around 8 p.m., the LAPD homicide detectives made a critical decision that would change the direction of the case forever. Because that's when detectives McElderry and Acevedo decided they were taking the remains out. Law enforcement teams have been known to stay overnight with remains. Why not this time? According to the report, the homicide detective said he thought about leaving the remains overnight, but said that, quote, he did not know whether someone had noticed the activity and could possibly come into the canyon overnight and disturb the scene. The detective was also aware that there were teeth in the upper jaw of the skull, making identification possible, and was concerned about losing critical evidence, end quote. He later said that he believed that people being in the area could attract wildlife overnight, which could damage the crime scene. The homicide detective said he believed he had permission to move the remains, but the coroner's office disagreed. According to the Office of Independent Review report, the coroner captain said that the detective told him that it was getting dark and, quote, he wanted permission to move the bones or remove them without us actually going in and being able to help them with it or conduct any kind of scene investigation, end quote. The captain also said that the detective had told him, quote, He told me that he saw only a skull and pelvic bone and leg bone. He believed that the rest of the remains had been washed down into that location and that animals had scattered the rest of the remains and that we would probably not be successful in any subsequent search of the area to find anything additional, end quote. This is an extremely bizarre statement for a homicide detective to make. He has just arrived on the scene, and before any forensic testing has been done, he decides that they won't find anything else. But when they lifted the pelvic bone out of the debris, they saw something else, a large portion of the skeleton still intact that had not been previously visible. So at that point, the homicide detectives knew, despite what they had just told the coroner's team, that they had much more than just three bones at that site. Still, the homicide detectives doubled down on their decision to move the remains. A Malibu search and rescue team member picked up the skull and placed it on a plastic sheet, which was laid out in a body bag. The recovery personnel gathered all of the small bones they could see and placed them with the rest of the remains. Before they left the scene, the team at the remains site laid out a silver rescue blanket and taped off the area with orange tape to mark the location so that when they returned, investigators could find the site. The remains were then loaded into a body bag and airlifted out by the helicopter. Finally, the next morning, the coroner's team was taken to the site where the remains had been found. But they received conflicting GPS coordinates and were unable to reach the location. It would be another two full weeks before the coroner's team was able to find the remains. When the team was finally able to hike into the area on August 25th, they found a lot more bones. And they, and the public, began to wonder, what else had the homicide detectives missed? Ann Sobel wrote an article about what went down that day for the Malibu Surfside News. She spoke to Ed Winter. He was the assistant coroner at the time. She wrote that he told her, quote, since coroner's personnel did not witness this procedure, they cannot attest to the care with which the remains were handled, End quote. Winter told Sobel that the coroner's office has a skeletal recovery team with specialized skills for handling this exact situation. If the coroner's office representatives were not able to get to the scene, documenting the crime scene becomes critical. Remember those photos that were taken by detectives? At some point, Ed Winter said that if he couldn't get to the site, he would need to see those photographs to determine if the remains could be moved. But the photographs apparently never made it across his desk. The Office of Independent Review report states that at least one detective took photos of the body on a cell phone, but was not able to email those photos, and that some of the rangers hiked out of the canyon with a flash drive containing some photos. But, the images that were on the flash drive apparently could not be downloaded back at the secondary command post at Lost Hill Station. The photos that were taken of the crime scene are reportedly not of usable quality. According to Mike Kessler's article in Los Angeles Magazine, some of the pictures that were taken by the Rangers were given to the coroner. He writes, quote, "...those images have not been disclosed or publicly discussed." But a well-placed source says that, like so many facets of Mitrice's case, her remains have generated more questions than they've answered. Her right leg, caked in soil and sprouting weeds, sat about two yards upslope from the body, atop a mound of dry vines. The femur of the leg had been removed from the soft tissue. As if it had been pulled from the top of the thigh, there was nothing but a narrow duct where the bone should have been. End quote.
0: Love a good fright? Start streaming and screaming with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and critically acclaimed exclusives, discover what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series cover the entire horror spectrum meaning there's something for every type of fan. Come experience highly anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulet brothers' Dracula. Plus, don't miss out on Creepshow, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, and other must-see Shudder exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder. So good, it's scary. This episode is sponsored by Maiden Home.
2: High quality handcrafted furniture for the modern home. Maiden Home brings you thoughtfully designed custom furniture handcrafted in North Carolina. This region is home to some of the world's most talented artisans who are experts in woodworking, upholstery, and finishing. By partnering directly with these family owned workrooms, Maiden Home gives you access to the world's finest craftsmanship without the retail markup. From sofas and sectionals to tables and beds, You'll find beautiful heirloom quality pieces that will last for years. And with over 60 fabrics and leathers and a variety of wood finishes to choose from, you can create a piece custom to your design style. Enjoy complimentary white glove delivery on all orders, a lifetime warranty, and easy returns within 30 days. To browse the latest collection and order free swatches, visit madeinhome.com. That's maidenhome.com. That's M A I D E N H O M E.com to start building your custom piece today.
4: to the chagrin of not only the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, but to all those that know my trees, particularly your mother and father, that this became an extraordinarily emotional and charged investigation.
5: On August 12th uh, at 9.30 a.m., the Los Angeles Angeles Sheriff's Department held a press conference.
4: Uh, Immediately we uh, went into that area, uh, retrieved those remains with the coroner's office, turned the remains over to the coroner's office, the coroner's office has done an extensive amount of forensic in the last several days, and it's to my sadness and disappointment that I'm reporting to you that it is the confirmed remains of Mytrice Richardson. —
5: They confirmed that the remains were Mytrice's. Sheriff Lee Baca called the discovery tragic.
4: — Life is fragile. Let's let the family have their time of grieving let's let this lady be buried in dignity and then let's go forward with the investigation of the Office of Independent Review. Uh, We have nothing to hide in this case. Uh, The point is there's a lot of factors beyond just the Sheriff's Department that need to be explained."
5: At the end of Baca's statement, journalists started yelling out about Michael Richardson. Michael is Matrice's father, and he had told journalists that he hadn't been informed that the remains were Mitrice's until minutes before the press conference. Baca responded that the coroner had given him a call. But when they brought it up again, the things got heated.
4: Am I missing yeah. the point here with you? Yeah, yeah. I just, I I just get you. informed a half an hour ago, you expect me to tell the father immediately. Should somebody tell the father? We just did. We just did. Comments? At a news conference, is it proper to notify someone... I just spoke to him, him and he was contacted by me right now. Now, if you object to that, that's your concern. I'm just asking you, is that proper? What do you think would be different in this circumstance? Maybe call him first, notify him first. If you don't know until 10 minutes ago, who are you going to call? If he's here, I was told he was here 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 when I arrived. I've paid my respects to him and will continue to do so. I don't understand the purpose of your question. Usually I've they notify family members here. before they pour a news
5: conference. Ed Winter of the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office estimated that Mitrice's remains had been at that site for six months to a year. We
4: conducted the uh, pathological e- uh, exam uh, preliminary, uh, also with an anthropologist yesterday and the odontologist uh, yesterday evening. Uh, the cause of death is deferred at this time. Uh, it is an ongoing investigation, and as soon if we can give causes, with mode, manner, and cause of death, we will do. How likely is it you'll be able to pinpoint a cause of death? Before? Don't know. It, uh, don't know at this time. That uh, is in the hands of the pathologist uh, and the uh, anthropologist. Uh, we did not find uh, anything obvious at this time, but it's a long process. Was other evidence found at the scene, which is in
5: Steve Whitmore the community information officer for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department took a few questions near the end of the press conference.
4: But that's not an area you can walk to, is it? I'm sorry, Where? what area? The area where the remains were found. No, no, you, well, you can walk to it. The only, the only way you can get to it or helicopter in.
6: But I mean, can you get there on foot is what I'm saying?
4: Yes, you can, but there's no, as far as I know, there's no uh, identifiable trails. You have to hack your way through... Uh, so it's
6: unlikely she got there on her own. There's a well, once again, there's we don't
4: want to speculate on that. But I will tell you this. Homicide is going to continue the investigation. They're going to try to figure out if they can, which we probably, it's likely, can never do. But they're going to try to figure out how she, in fact, got there. So that is something. This is not closed. This is still open. And that's what they're going to do. We do not know. It's, it's likely that we can never find out exactly how she got there. But they're going to do their very best to figure that out. So that is still under investigation, and it's still going to be looked at. Thank you.
5: Sheriff's officials were quick to say that they saw no signs of foul play. But according to the L.A. Times, they also said that they did not believe that Mitrice fell to her death. This doesn't make sense. In these strange set of circumstances, how could they immediately conclude that there was no sign of foul play? After many grueling months of searching and wondering, Mitrice's family and friends finally got an answer. However, it was not the sigh of relief they were all hoping for. Rhonda says that they had to demand that police take them to the site where Matrice was found. They eventually agreed. So they went down to the site with Malibu Search and Rescue and Sergeant Toohey Wright.
7: So when we go down to the creek bed, if you go to the left, there's this little mound. And her, her thigh bone actually was found on that little mound. So there's a little mound there and it's taped off with the yellow tape, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or what was the orange tape, sorry and so but then on to the left there's this little gully right and so while all the other search and rescue people went to where the orange tape was tuey went to the gully but so i followed him because i don't try to do that so i followed him so it's just me and him standing around i said Tui, how come we're we're you're right here and everybody else is over there and he goes i don't know and i was like well what's going on and he goes well this is where her body was found and i was like well why are they over there and he said, I don't know again. And then I said, well, well, why are you here? And he goes, well, this is where she was. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because I found her body.
5: That's strange. And I was
7: like, Chewie, I, um, I thought the rangers found her body. And then he just gave me this look. And we kind of had this moment of staring. And then he called everybody else. Hey, guys, come over here. This is where her body was.
5: Extracting Mitrice's remains was a coordinated effort among LAPD coroners, medical examiners, and police with the LASD and LAPD. And depending on jurisdictions, there are different processes for extraction. The LAPD coroner's office is the biggest coroner's office in the country. Until recently, it even had a gift shop. So a lot of reporters shared my surprise that the coordinated extraction of Mitrice's remains ended up... This disorganized.
8: My name is Sally Aiken, Dr. Sally Aiken, and I am a medical examiner and forensic pathologist.
5: We talked with Sally Aiken, the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners, about process and procedure for extraction. When you're dispatched to the scene and there are remains there, who decides um, when the remains should be moved? So it... It
8: depends on the jurisdiction so every every death investigation system in the united states has laws that they're subject to so it really depends on the on on how that law those laws impact the office but in my state the the body more or less belongs to the medical examiner or coroner so We that's considered our jurisdiction so some of the things around the body at the scene like things in the home or things outdoors are part of the death scene investigation performed ordinarily by law enforcement but the body is is our is under our jurisdiction so in my office we determine when a body's moved and arrange for it to be moved and And taxed it appropriately. And is that something you would tell the police? So if we're talking about a homicide, the police would inform us that they have a potential homicide victim at a location. And they may process parts of the scene around the body, but they leave the body to us. So we get contacted, come to the scene. We package the body and label it appropriately and have a transport team that moves the body to our facility. So in the case of the homicide, I'm there labeling the body, making sure we've collected trace evidence appropriately at the scene, which might be things like touch DNA that you might do at the scene instead of during the autopsy, and then package the body in our transport moves it, it's packaged in a body pouch with an evidence tag and that comes to our facility which is secure obviously and then the evidence tag is not broken till autopsy. So there's a there's a really specific protocol for how it needs to, everything needs to be moved and tagged? Yes. Yes. Just to make sure um, that it's done appropriately so that we can verify that's done correctly.
5: The day after Mitrice's remains were found, on August 11, 2010, a forensic pathologist from the coroner's office conducted an autopsy. Here's what they found. In the autopsy report, the pathologist noted the remains were a nearly complete human skeletal remains with no evidence of anti-mortem trauma. So there were no broken bones that would have suggested trauma before Mitrice's death. A fall, for example, that could have potentially contributed to a cause of death. And no trauma to the fingers or toes, except for a small amount of post-mortem activity that investigators suspected had been caused by animals. The pathologist consulted with a forensic anthropologist from the coroner's office, and they determined that a small number of bones were still missing. These included the hyoid bone and other neck bones, the cossacks, and several vertebrae, five bones on the right hand, and multiple bones from her right and left feet. An examination of dental records and DNA testing showed that the remains were Mitrice Richardson. The cause of death was listed as undetermined. Investigators later interviewed the forensic pathologist from the coroner's office. They asked if the very crude recovery method could have damaged the bones. The pathologist said that they found no evidence of artificial trauma which would be caused, for example, if someone had dropped a bone on a rock, causing an obvious fracture. On August 25th, 2010, 16 days after the discovery of the remains, the coroner's team, a coroner canine unit, Malibu Search and Rescue, and the homicide detectives hiked again into Dark Canyon to conduct another search for remains. This time they located the site. They found five additional vertebrae, one carpal bone, and three phalangeal bones. Mitrice's family was growing increasingly frustrated at what they viewed as the sheriff's department's stonewalling. They asked for help from Clea Koff. Clea is a forensic anthropologist who has extensive experience investigating forensic evidence of war crimes and genocide she agreed to help Maitrese's family. On Saturday, August 21st, 2010, Maitrese was buried in Inglewood Cemetery. This is the day that we heard about at the cemetery from Dr. Rhonda. Before Maitrese was laid to rest, Clea observed what she believed to be some irregularities. She was shocked to discover that Maitrese's clothes were inside the body bag and none of them appeared to have been tested. Here's Rhonda, again, explaining what it was like. Right when the service was going to start, right when the service was going to start, then that's when I get the phone call,
6: right? <laughs> her body had not been analyzed. Her clothing were in the body bag. Clothing in the body bag. Her body had not been analyzed. Anthropologist is like, we got to figure out what to do. And then we knew she was going to be buried. So we're already knowing, this is what the anthropologist says, when we bury her, we're going to have to fight for exhumation. But what she did was she took because she had worked forensically, she knew how to secure the clothing. So she secured them, you know, for chain of custody issues. So she was able to do that. So her her body was not buried with the clothing, the clothing was kept here. So then we didn't tell them about the clothing until we met with the coroners and we start going through the reasons why there needed to be an exhumation. Because her body wasn't evaluated, because she was not there was just no evaluation.
5: Rhonda drafted a five-page document that she sent to the LAPD with a long list of questions for the coroner and medical examiner. She and Maitrese's family were not convinced that the police had found everything. Two months after the service, on November 6, 2010, Maitrese's mom, Latisse, her aunt Lauren, Rhonda, and Kliakoff returned to the site with the sheriff and other department members. After a hard hike, they managed to get to the site where Mitrice's remains were found. They put up a memorial to my trees, laid flowers down, and started sifting through leaves with equipment provided by Clea Koff.
7: What happened is I was with that forensic anthropologist. Her name is Clea Koff. And I told her, listen, I, you know what? I don't care about a freaking memorial. I want to go up there and I want all of her bones out there. Mm-hmm. So when we hike up to that site, y'all can put up a memorial all you want to, but I, you need to show me how to search for bones because I want her the hell out of here. So we so we hiked up there. And so then the forensic anthropologist, she she said, okay, this is how you do it.
5: Rhonda took matters into her own hands. That's when she brushed some leaves aside and saw something small and solid. To their horror, the group realized that they had found a human finger bone.
7: So she was showing me how they do it, and as soon as we did that, a finger bone popped up. And then she was like, shit, we got to get out of here. So then we had to call the search rescue, it's gone bond, and rescue, found a bone, and that's when they airlifted out of there.
5: They immediately turned the bone over to the sheriff's department personnel who delivered it to the coroner. Later testing would confirm that the bone was a match to my trees.
7: And then they came back and they retrieved bones, and I think they had to come another time. I think they were out there three times, the first time and two other times that it took them to retrieve all of them. So the actually,
5: if you guys hadn't done that, who knows if they would have found the other bones at all?
7: No, they wouldn't have went up there again. Mm-hmm.
5: I mean, that's unbelievable in itself. And they would,
7: just said, they would have just said that the animals got her or something like that.
5: On February 13, 2011, a team from the coroner and personnel from the LASD returned to the site and conducted another extensive search. Eight additional bone fragments were found and recovered. Latisse filed a request to have her daughter's remains exhumed, and it was granted. In July 2011, Mitrice's remains were exhumed by the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office they exhumed Mytrese. Clea observed what she believed to be a few irregularities, including Mytrese's arm position and the fact that her teeth were pink. Clea indicated in her report that the pink teeth could be a sign of asphyxiation. Some forensic dentists have done tests and concluded that pink teeth are caused by asphyxiation or violent deaths, including strangulation, asphyxiation of some kind, or Drowning. That's a theory. Kliakoff also brought up Mitrice's clothing. She said clearly that there were no signs of decomposition fluids on the clothes, which, she said, indicated that Mitrice's clothing was removed before her body started decomposing. So either Mitrice took her clothes off herself, or someone took them off her before she died. Then, Mitrice was buried a second time
6: for some reason on that day was better on the day that her body was, exhumed was better because i don't know why but the workers they like so were so nice about it and then they um there was a point when they were gonna because what happens is they they exhume your body it has to be back in the ground within 24 hours so they take her body, it goes to the crime lab, they do everything, and then she comes back. I don't know how many hours later, but we had to wait. So when they were putting her back, the workers like they like gathered around with just themselves and they like said a little prayer for her. was so sweet. And then all the detectives with their raggedy asses were here, but I, I was able to ignore that on that day.
1: Geico. Great service, without all the drama.
5: Undetermined is possibly the only thing more painful for family members who suspect that their loved one could have died under violent circumstances to hear than homicide. Because with undetermined, they're in limbo. So how did Maitreese die? Possibilities suggested by the police include anaphylactic shock brought on by poison ivy exposure, which is extremely rare, or a rattlesnake bite, which one or two people per year die of in California. There were no broken bones or signs of any kind of animal attack. And if Maitrice did have some sort of allergic reaction or snake bite, why would she take her clothes off? Why were her shoes and underwear missing? Many people close to the case found the fact that the body was only partially mummified after 11 months of exposure strange as well. Could Mitrice's body have been kept somewhere else, maybe inside, and then moved to the location where it was found at a later date? Mitrice's family also finds it odd that her hyoid bone and other bones in the neck that could have shown signs of strangulation were among those that were not found.
3: Uh, my name is Katherine Maloney, and I am the deputy chief medical examiner in Buffalo, New York.
5: We called Dr. Catherine Maloney to get an outsider's perspective on Mitrice's autopsy report. In looking at the autopsy, was there anything that stood out to you? Well, in terms
3: of the um, initial autopsy report itself, I mean, it looked like it was a very thorough report. Obviously, it was a difficult report to do because it seems like her body was was quite decomposed where they didn't have... It seemed like any of the internal organs. It was almost mostly just a little bit of skin and bones and some sort of non-specific soft tissue. And also, it looks like you know a fair number of the bones were missing as well, which makes um, you know determination of the cause of death difficult.
5: Right, and it had been eleven months. Um, well, I know that uh, there had been speculation about the mummification of the body and the fact that. A lot of people seem to be saying it was only partially mummified. So that means, you know, she wasn't there the whole time. She had to have been moved. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about how bodies mummify.
3: So mummification is a process where a body kind of dries out. So mummification happens when you have a warm or hot, dry environment. So if there's um, moisture around or a lot of moisture, a body will not mummify. And I know she was in a canyon or I think they um, sometimes get spring water probably from, I don't know if it's from melting snow or something like that. So that may have interfered with a mummification process. Um, and it also depends what type of exposure there is, you know, to animals. And if there's any type of, you know, moisture, it depends how much it might have rained or if there were trees or leaves covering her that would have kept her body damp. You know, that can kind of delay uh, mummica- mummification as well
5: let's say like a a leg or an arm or something was under a pile of leaves or if it was buried, um, could that have caused it not to mummify that part of the body?
3: Yes. Um, So if there were portions of her body that were under, you know, kind of damp leaves or other debris, that would have prevented that part of the body from mummifying because really for mummification, you need to have warm, uh, dry environment.
5: So in response to the mummification theories... Dr. Maloney said that it would have been possible for my trees to have remained in the elements for that long and only been partially mummified. We also asked Dr. Maloney about some of the other working theories of the case, including asphyxiation. And, I mean, I know that we've had some of the other working theories about the case have been... Things like asphyxiation, and you know, did she we know she had asthma, so could she have had some sort of a fatal asthma attack? Possibly also strangulation. And I just wondered, is there anything in the evidence that indicated any of those things?
3: Well, I mean, in terms of asthma and an asthma attack, you know, her internal organs are gone, which means her lungs are gone. So it basically would be impossible to prove if that happened or did not happen. Um, in terms of a strangulation, it would probably also be very difficult because most of the bones of the neck are missing. Um, they describe in the autopsy report, they have a, a few of the vertebrae, so those are the spinal column that they identify in the neck. But otherwise, it sounds like the neck structures themselves are gone. You know, so people talk about like the hyoid bone um, potentially being broken in a strangulation or the other neck structures that are soft tissue, so muscles that would have hemorrhages and things like that that are obviously gone as well. So a strangulation in this case would be very difficult to identify and very difficult to prove.
5: Is the hyoid bone still around? I mean, could it still be out there somewhere buried?
3: It's definitely possible that the hyoid bone is still out there. Um, And so this becomes part of the issue Uh, When you have um, skeletonized or partially skeletonized remains, it's really critical to have an experienced anthropologist or a team of anthropologists go to the scene to basically excavate the body because it's very easy for people who aren't trained in identifying bones and identifying the areas where bones are found. It's very easy for those people to miss bones or potential pieces of evidence So, for example, when we've had cases with skeletonized remains or partially skeletonized remains, we have had a team of anthropologists go and they basically chart out the area. So they'll put down, you know, strings and sticks and they'll make a grid and they'll go through each area of the grid and sift through the dirt. Like literally get like a giant sifter and sift through the dirt to make sure they're not missing anything. Um, and then they'll identify where the bones are, and then they'll diagram exactly where each bone was found. So you can get a sense of how the person's body was lying, you know, in the ground. You know, was it was it partially buried? Was it head down? Was it feet down? Was it face down? Was it was it on its back? So information like that can be critical to a forensic pathologist, and that's why it's really the the most information that could be obtained in a case like this. Unfortunately, where the remains are are really skeletonized, are you know, the, the scene itself and how the body's kind of laid out, and then getting all those bones so you can, you know, examine every single one of
5: them. Unfortunately, this did not happen in Mitrice's case. And, I mean, obviously in this case, it was, there's another issue because the, well, there was an argument between the sheriff's department and the coroner. They, they, the sheriff's department made the decision kind of against the coroner's, you know, advice or knowledge to, just pick everything up and put it in a helicopter and move it, which I guess, I mean, after that, it becomes probably really hard to figure out what happened.
3: Yeah, this situation is, is really unfortunate and would have made it very difficult for the forensic pathologists involved and the medical examiner or coroner involved to determine the cause of death. And I mean, it's nothing, it happens in our jurisdiction too. You know, the you know the police are trying to help or they think, yeah, I'll just scoop the stuff up and transport it. And then you guys don't have to come or, or you can't come, you know, in an area where it's difficult to go. And, um, you know, a lot of times too, it'll happen like it'll be starting to get dark and the police will say like, oh, well, we, we can't, You know, it's getting dark. We have to move these remains. We can't leave them overnight in the dark. And what our anthropologist always says, especially with skeletonized remains, you know, it's like these are skeletonized remains. That means they've been here for, you know, weeks, if not months, maybe years. They can wait one more night, you know, in terms of them just lying there. And we can do this in the morning when we have daylight, you know, when everyone's rested and everybody's fresh. We've done that on more than one occasion where we basically said, you know, like, put up a tent, put up some tarps. You know make sure that the you know the road to this area is guarded or if you can you know have someone wait to guard the remains so nothing happens to them and then first thing in the morning we'll have our team come we'll have daylight we'll be able to see what's going on and then everyone can sort of do their job.
5: She also said that Kleokoff's suspicions about the curled-up arm are inconclusive. But it's hard to say, because we don't know the original position the body was found in. And in terms of DNA evidence on hair, Dr. Maloney said that most of that would have most likely been destroyed. With the sun and the heat and time, DNA would almost certainly not survive. And testing DNA on clothing is particularly difficult. Labs only accept small fibers. A whole shirt, for example, can't be tested. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the lows that night were in the 60s, so it wasn't particularly, I mean, it's California, September. Um, It does get a little chilly at night up there, but not, I don't know if it's possible to die of, I don't know if it's possible to die of exposure at, you know, temperatures in the 50s. Um, maybe if you got wet.
3: So I feel like if, if your clothing was wet and you didn't take off your wet clothes, I think it's it's possible maybe in the 50s because the being wet would kind of leach more of the heat out of your body. But I think if, you're, if your body's dry, depending on what you're wearing, in the 50s, I'd say it's a lot less likely to die of, you're a lot less likely to die of hypothermia than if, you know, it's in the 20s or the teens or something
5: like that. Finally, we asked Dr. Maloney if anything else could be done.
3: Well, at this point, it's going to be difficult. That's for sure. I mean, I suppose an attempt could be made with the clothing. I mean, if you could get someone who, you know, was some type of expert in looking at, you know, clothing of assault victims and identifying stains or what might be a relevant stain or, you know, a potentially informative stain who could look at the clothes. You know, maybe they could give some information. I mean, maybe revisiting the scene. Although I'm sure it's, I think it's. It sounded like it's been done multiple times. But trying to find those extra pieces of bone might be almost impossible. But I mean, if if you could find, you know, the hyoid bone or the neck structures, and see if they have any types of injuries. But really, I mean, the hyoid bone is maybe an inch long. So if if the bones are or the you know where she was found, every if anything was spread out at all, you know, it might be difficult to find. Especially if there was some type of animal scavenging, you know, an animal might have
7: just kind of run off with it.
5: We also followed up with a forensic botanist, and entomologist, and both of them said, forensically, nothing more can be done at this point. And in regards to the pink teeth theory, we reached out to three forensic odontologists to see if that could definitively prove anything. One reached back out to us and he made it clear that he thinks the pink teeth theory is absurd. Quote, The pink teeth are a red-pink herring. There is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that pink teeth are related to asphyxial deaths. Just one of those anecdotes that gain too much credence over discussion in bars. The idea that you could force blood into teeth in this way, or prevent it escaping, is biologically implausible, and no one would give it much thought today. End quote. So he says that the pink teeth are not conclusive proof of strangulation. But there's another piece of the puzzle that's still missing. Mitrice's hyoid bone is still out there, and it's the one piece of evidence that could provide answers about whether or not Mitrice was strangled. Next time on Helen Gone. And it's
7: like, as far as us being a woman, you know, like. And it released us at that
8: time of night. And it's like, you know, it wasn't okay. They were fucking the Wild West back then. The risk of suicide is significantly elevated in people experiencing bipolar disorder.
5: Look, I totally understand how if you were just the jailer that night and you did your job and then you're like, everyone's coming down hard on you, I get that that would suck. Um, but again, like, where's the compassion? I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Hell and Gone is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It's written and narrated by me, Catherine Townsend. Our producers are Gabby Watts, Taylor Church, and James Morrison. Music is by Ben Salee. Mix is by Tune Welders. Our executive producers are Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Brian Lavin. Special thanks to Chip Croft for use of footage from his documentary, Lost Compassion.
2: humans. The for this podcast is from Williams. We make clean energy happen. Williams is the first North American midstream company to establish a climate commitment and an immediate approach to a sustainable future. We've released our 2020 sustainability report to track progress on our ESG goals, which includes a near-term emissions reduction target of 56% by 2030. We're leveraging our natural gas-focused strategy to fight climate change today and build a clean energy economy tomorrow. Our infrastructure and commitment are transforming the future of energy. Learn more at Williams.com.
1: The Real-Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time.
2: Why do I obsess over true
3: crime? It's because I need to know every detail because they say that the devil's in the details.
1: Listen to Real-Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: How do airplanes fly? What's in this box? What does this thing do?
1: Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Learn how to store your gun
0: securely and make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council.